Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lexicon Valley is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 10, titled One Giant Leap for Humanity, wherein we discuss the he said, she said of the generic pronoun. Yo, Mike. Hey, Bob. Did you happen to catch the latest episode of Girls? You know I did. It was pretty wrenching to watch two of my favorite characters, the Hannah character and the Shoshana character, both you know sucked into the weekly vortex of degradation and humiliation. <laughs> well, I should say that you and I have talked, not on this podcast, but off-air, so to speak, about this new HBO show, Girls. I'll just briefly, for those who haven't seen it, say that it's about four young underemployed underemployed and overeducated yeah and dysfunctionally dating young women in new york it's been described as a kind of sex in the city for the millennial set and you had asked me if i noticed how often the main character hannah played by lena dunham ended her sentences with so and i hadn't i hadn't noticed that at all i just don't generally notice it even in real life conversation but I made a point of listening for it in this last episode, and I noticed two times in the same scene 
when she used this trail off so in precisely the way that we talked about in our episode about so kind of winding up to a conclusion that she left unstated and then sort of passed off to her conversational partner. I don't think we should see each other anymore. And it makes me feel stupid and pathetic to get a picture of your dick that I know was meant for someone else. And you didn't even bother to explain because I made you think that you don't have to explain. So. What are you asking? I'm not asking anything. I'm really not asking you for anything. I've never asked you for anything. I don't even want anything. Okay. I respect your right to see and do whoever you want. And I don't even want a boyfriend. So I'm sorry, Mike. Uh, when I <laughs> relive this, she's just so self-destructive emotionally, and this guy she's with <laughs> is, is just such a self-involved, exploitive piece of shit. <laughs> yeah, and what's great about those trail-off shows is that she's clearly trying to break up with him, but in fact, not trying to break up with him. Yeah, the implication is that in that so resides the fact that everything she just said is factually true, and yet she has no intention of breaking up with him. On the contrary, she hopes that she gets literally pulled into his squalid apartment to <laughs> recommence this destructive relationship. And she does. Also, a number of our listeners in their iTunes review used the rhetorical device that we talked about a couple of weeks ago on the show, Lytotes, which is a form of understatement. And I'll read to you my favorite. It's by Anraita. He or she wrote, quote, This podcast is not only not uninteresting, it is also not poorly produced, nor is the range of topics limited or unoriginal. I am not disinclined to listen to each upcoming episode with relish. Now, it almost sort of defeats the purpose of being understated when you're this hyperbolic in your understatement. Yeah, yeah, hyperlitotes. Nonetheless, while she may cancel out the rhetorical device by using it five or six times in the same note, I'm, I'm not unmoved and I'm not ungrateful. And I hope others will do very much the same thing. Okay, on to this week's episode. Last week, I asked how you, Bob talk about a person of unknown or unspecified gender in English. Yeah, once again, you invite me to be the bad guy. By <laughs> you do just fine on your own. Yeah, drawing me out as to my, my linguistic preferences, in this case, to use the default he. Uh, I sometimes say he or she. That gets awkward. I am most disinclined to use the solution they – when referring to a singular he or she, because the screwing with the number in this sentence, I just find too nettlesome. So, yeah, I perpetuate just centuries-old stereotypes and discrimination by using the default he, and I can't really come up with a better solution. Well, I wanted to find out how it was that we came to use he as the default, and I asked Ann Curzan, who we spoke to last week. She is the professor at the University of Michigan who has studied grammatical gender in English. I asked her, well, you can hear for yourself what I asked her. I'll include my question. In this system of he, she, and it, there's no really good way to refer to somebody of unknown gender or a hypothetical person, say. We tend then to sort of use he as a default, how did he become this kind of generic pronoun that we use? 
Well, I'm going to start by saying that I disagree with the premise that we have no way to refer to a person of unknown gender. We'll get there. But we'll come back to that. So he has been used as a generic for hundreds of years. So one answer to the question is that at the end of the 18th century, grammar books started to prescribe he as a generic and to say, this is the right thing to do and anything else is not a good or grammatically correct choice. And that got picked up from one grammar to the next and became sort of grammatical law until the 1970s. So that's one answer. Why whatever happened in the 1970s? I can't imagine. <laughs> Maybe there was something called second wave feminism. The other answer is that we actually see generic he even earlier than that. Way earlier. Way right? earlier. And part of that may be that when people were talking about a generic clerk or a generic writer, what they had in their head was actually a man because most literate people would have been men. If they were talking about a teacher, odds are that teacher would have been a man. So when they say the teacher he, it's hard to know, is that a generic he, or did they really have in mind that any teacher would be a he? So what she's talking about is preponderance. Uh, the society, until very recently, the late 20th century, was constructed to so exclude women from the roles that had pronouns attached to them that uh, this sort of structural discrimination in language took root and persists still today. Yeah. And in fact, Curzan sifted through dozens and dozens of Old and Middle English texts. These are religious texts, historical texts, verses. And what she found was that the vast majority of nouns that were referred back to by pronouns were masculine gendered nouns. Remember, this was a time when English had grammatical gender. In fact, more than 80% of these nouns were of the masculine gender. So he has been the dominant pronoun either by decree later on or by default for centuries in English. Of course, now not everyone is on board with that. Because in 2012, it just feels arbitrary and, and discriminatory to kind of excise women from our sentences because of some antiquated rule. You know, some people arrived at this conclusion far earlier than 2012 – for example, in November of 1971, during this second wave feminism that Curzan alluded to, a couple of women at Harvard Divinity School made a proposal to their professor and fellow students regarding the language that was used in their class. The proposal called for a ban on the use of man, men, and masculine pronouns to refer to all people. Also, a number of women during a lecture blew on paper kazoos whenever man, men, or masculine pronouns were used in that way. Thus establishing a sort of militancy to this question, which has either made it easier or harder to litigate in the living language. Yeah, and bringing attention to it. In fact, it got so much attention at the time that Newsweek wrote about the incident with what I can only describe as a very unsympathetic tone. I'll let you decide for yourself. Newsweek said that this was, quote, yet another tilt at the windmill. They referred to the protesters as distaff theologians. Wow, <laughs> distaff. Now, there is a word that has almost entirely 
disappeared from the culture along you know along with the women's pages right yeah <laughs> but i mean you could just hear the sarcasm oh, kind of dripping and condescension oh my gosh and then newsweek went on to report that quote every time anyone in the room lapsed into what the students regarded as male chauvinism such as using the word mankind to describe the human race in general the outraged women drowned out the offender with ear-piercing blasts from party favor kazoos. What annoyed the women most was the universal custom of referring to God as he. Yeah, well, first of all, Mike, I think we ought to get some fact-checkers involved here because there is certainly a difference between kazoos and those unraveling uh, party noisemakers. It is a different form of noise making, and I think somebody needs to be called into account for that misstatement of fact. Wait, wait, so that's your quibble with what Newsweek wrote? <laughs> <laughs> no, because what we're witnessing here is like the foreshadowing of the political correctness backlash, the visceral discomfort with ideas that so threaten the status quo and the concomitant willingness to dismiss them as a sort of silly radicalism. Well, if you thought that was condescending, it gets even better, or I guess worse, I should say. Members of the linguistics department at Harvard, including the chair of the department, a guy named Calvert Watkins, wrote a letter to the Harvard Crimson saying that the proposal by the Divinity School students to, quote, recast part of the grammar of the English language reflects a concern which we as linguists would like to try to alleviate. Well, you know, I fear for what he's about to say by way of alleviation, but I'm surprised he didn't just take a reflexive stand for orthodoxy on this and dismiss the objections out of hand. So, Well, the letter goes on to talk about how linguists refer to many word pairings as having an unmarked and a marked member. What that means simply is that for a pair of words like tall and short, for example— Tall is used more generically. It's less noticeable in a sense, right? You would ask, how tall is that person? You wouldn't ask, how short are they, unless you're trying to call attention to their shortness. So tall is considered unmarked, and short is marked. So the linguists end their letter with the following. The fact that the masculine is the unmarked gender in English is simply a feature of grammar, there is really no cause for anxiety or pronoun envy on the part of those seeking changes. You still have high hopes for him to alleviate their concerns without condescension? Uh, no, but, uh, you know, while on one hand I'd like to kind of give the guy props for not just dismissing the criticism as the whining of silly suffragettes or some sort of thing and offering some actual linguistic underpinnings for the preference for he, you know, I can't help but notice that the esculpatory evidence he's citing, the linguistic esculpatory evidence, is itself evidence of entrenched sexism. Because mm -hmm. how has it come to be but for entrenched sexism that he is unmarked and she is marked. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, there were other linguists at the time who pointed out the kind of folly of this reasoning. In fact, one by the name of James Armagost wrote, quote, a reasonably inquisitive person might wonder why the masculine is unmarked. The question deserves a better answer than 
What a coincidence that the masculine is unmarked in the language of a people convinced that men are superior to women. It's kind of like offering an alibi. Uh, My client couldn't possibly have murdered his wife. Why, at the time of the crime, we can prove he was busy murdering his wife. (laughs) Okay, let's take a short break to talk about our sponsor, Audible.com, which will essentially put a library of audiobooks at your fingertips. Now, I know that there are, even in this digital age, some holdouts, people who have resisted the idea of audiobooks. I would urge you to seek out the very persuasive arguments of Ann Kirshner. She's a professor at CUNY, the City University of New York, and has written in the Chronicle of Higher Education and in other places about the experience of reading a paperback versus reading on her iPhone versus reading as an audiobook. And yes, she calls it reading. And she makes a very, very persuasive case for this. Audible.com has a special offer for Lexicon Valley listeners. If you sign up for a free 30-day trial membership, you get one free audiobook of your choice. You have to visit audiblepodcast.com slash lexicon to do so. And included in the membership is a free subscription to either the New York Times or Wall Street Journal Daily Audio Digest. Visit our URL, audiblepodcast.com slash lexiconvalley. Seek out the writings of Ann Kirshner. She will convince you. Okay, Bob, we left off in 1971. Just a few months after the incident at Harvard in early 1972, the very first issue of Ms. Magazine was published, the very first standalone issue. It had previously been an insert in New York Magazine. And included in this very first issue was a column called Desexing the Language by two writers, Casey Miller and Kate Swift, who went on to write a very influential book called Words and Women about the intrinsic sexism in the English language. They pointed out in this column that constructions like he or she or him slash her were becoming increasingly common, but that they were, as you said, Bob, awkward. Yeah, there's actually an an even better word, cumbersome. They wrote, since there is no way in English to solve problems like these with felicity and grace, it is becoming obvious that what we need is a new singular personal pronoun that is truly generic, a common gender pronoun. Now, uh, new words are introduced to the language organically all the time, but very seldom kind of engineered into the language. Mm -hmm. Yet, I can think of one example that has become common and uncontroversial usage and was invented from whole cloth, and that was, in fact, Ms. as a title to stand for a woman married or unmarried. Yeah, but, you know, it took a while for Ms. to catch on. I want to read to you a passage from Words and Women In 1973, the government printing office sanctioned Ms. as an optional prefix for use in all federal government publications. Swimming against the stream, the governor of New Hampshire sent out a memo in 1974 to all secretaries employed by that state, ordering that, quote, the practice of using Ms. instead of Miss or Mrs. is to be discontinued immediately. (laughs) Live free or die. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Not everyone was on board with Ms. Of course, now we think, how could anyone have objected to it? But people did. People objected to a lot of these sort of de-sexing efforts because, as 
Casey Miller and Kate Swift point out, they were worried that words like these would underrate sexual differences. And they argued to the contrary, right? We could still use he, him, and his as exclusively masculine, and we could still use she, her, and hers as exclusively feminine. But what about when we don't want to be exclusive? So here's what they proposed. Modeling these new common gender pronouns after the existing plural pronouns, they, there, and them. So what they came up with was te, ter, and tem. <laughs> it sounds like it sounds like buckwheat in the old Our Gang comedy. Yeah, or it sounds like Tweety Bird, right? I mean, <laughs> In fact, here, I'll give you a sense of what it sounds like when it's worked not so organically into a sentence. They ended their column, desexing the language, with this. Language constantly evolves in response to need. It is groping today for ways to accommodate the new recognition of women as full-fledged members of the human race. If the new pronoun helps anyone toward that end, Tay should be free to adopt it. If anyone objects, it is certainly ter right. But in that case, let Tem come up with a better solution. <laughs> it sounds pretty fucking stupid to me. <laughs> but, you know, I can't blame them for trying. It is maddening that the language doesn't have those options to begin with. But to try to impose them leads to, you know, this kind of, I guess the only word is folly. Their suggestion really never got a whole lot of traction, did it? Oh, no, it didn't. And in fact, as Ann Curzan points out, their attempt was just one in a long line of many dating back to at least the 1850s. Here's Curzan. E, Thon, Husha. We have all kinds of artificial pronouns that have been created over the years, and none of them have succeeded, which I think is unsurprising. If you think about what it would mean for all of us to integrate that pronoun into our daily speech, we use pronouns all the time. And to try to use an unfamiliar pronoun in that spot, it's just hard for speakers. It will feel unnatural to them. And it certainly hasn't succeeded yet. It would be like trying to, I don't know, maybe learn the metric system. (laughs) (laughs) It could be. It could be even harder than that. Thon, you mentioned Thon. That one is actually a particular favorite of mine. That was invented in the late 1800s by a musician, and it's a kind of contraction of that one. Thon actually made it into some dictionaries. Mm -hmm. It's in Webster's second, I believe. It got dropped then for Webster's third. (laughs) Because no one was using it. You know, Bob, one of my favorite suggestions, in addition to Thon, was in the mid-1970s by a guy in Forbes magazine. He suggested contracting he, she, or it to H apostrophe O-R-S-H apostrophe I-T, which, if pronounced, (laughs) sounds a lot like horseshit. (laughs) That's actually worse than the uh, pronoun envy. That's just mean. (laughs) Yeah, but I think it really highlights the kind of absurdity of trying to, as you suggested, engineer a new word for inclusion into the language. Now, if you remember when I suggested to Anne Curzan that there was no good way to refer to someone of unknown gender, she disagreed with the premise. And we said that we would get to that later. 
Can you guess what she was getting at? Well, I'm afraid she's getting at the very thing which I have already announced that rubs me the wrong way, but Mm -hmm. I'm all ears. Okay, I'm going to let her try to convince you. Here's Ann Curzan. I think there's a good way. Not everyone agrees with me on whether there's a good way, but... What most of us as speakers do is that we refer to a person of unknown gender or unspecified gender as they. And what's wrong with that? Well, the people who don't like that say what's wrong with it is that they is plural. And they say it can't be singular. And my argument is it already is singular. So if I say something like I was talking to a friend of mine and they said it's a great movie – I think most of the time that would go unremarked. And if you think about that sentence, they is clearly functioning as a singular. I was talking to a friend of mine, and they said, one friend, they. And there's a precedent for this. There is a precedent. If you think about the history of you, you used to be the plural form, ye and you, and thee and thou used to be the singular form. And as thee and thou died, you took over both the singular and the plural function. This is a kind of heated, ongoing debate, whether or not they can be used in the singular. And it's one of those places where what we do in speech and what we're told we're allowed to do in formal writing have really diverged. So studies of speech show that we're using they as a singular in this situation most of the time. So we would say a teacher should know their students' names, one teacher there. But when we're writing, we're told use his or her. Or rewrite the sentence so that you get rid of the problem. So teachers should know their students' names. Mm. Or some people will alternate every other sentence or every other paragraph. A teacher he, a teacher she. I must admit I find this fairly confusing as people's genders are changing every paragraph. But I think it's only a question of time before we're allowed to use they in formal writing. And I already do. You're a rebel. I am a rebel. Um, But what I do is I footnote it the first time I use it, and I explain why I'm using singular they as a generic so people know that I've made a conscious decision there. Lest you seem ignorant. (laughs) (laughs) Because I would hear about it if people thought I had not made a conscious decision. And I tell my students they can do the same thing. And we're even still creating new pronouns, right? (laughs) We are. So I can use you as a singular. You are one person. And I can talk to a group of people and say, you are as a group. But many dialects of English have found other ways to refer to a group. So we get y'all, youns, yins, yous, and you guys. I'm from New Jersey, so I'm partially yous. (laughs) (laughs) And I will admit that I'm a you guys user. Did she convince you? Did she convince me? She convinced me that there is a historical trajectory which may make it less irritating to me around, you know, 2214, but I will be dead for almost five years by then. (laughs) So I don't think I personally will ever be comfortable. But, you know, I, I suspect and hope that this ceases to be an issue before long. You don't necessarily have to use it yourself, but I just want you to recognize that many of us do. And it seems to be the way that the language is going. Now, as Anne Curzan points out in her book, this masculine-feminine dichotomy remains explicitly captured in these third-person pronouns, he and she. But this dichotomy, as she puts it, pervades the lexicon as well as the grammar of English in many other ways, in a way that 
linguists would probably call asymmetrical and what we would call simply sexist. Here again is Anne Curzan. A good example would be the word wench, which in Old English meant a child of either gender. It comes to refer specifically to a female child, and then it comes to refer to a female servant, and then it comes to refer to a prostitute. And now it can also be used to refer to any unpleasant or disagreeable woman. So I think that you're seeing there, as the word moves, for example, from a female child to a servant, the equation in people's mind between a female servant in terms of status and a child in the house. And then you're seeing attitudes about prostitutes being equated with servants, the low status. So you see that happen with wench. You also see it happen with girl, which meant child. It then specifies to female child. People then use it for a servant. And you still hear that sometimes for women who work for someone else is that that's their girl, even for an adult woman. And then an expression like call girl, you see it used for prostitutes. Or working girl. Working girl. There are a number of words that go through this very similar kind of evolution Mm -hmm. throughout English, or maybe you'd say devolution. Right. So master mistress where again, the word mistress picks up more and more negative meanings. The word maid used to be synonymous with maiden. So a young woman, often a virgin, then comes to refer to a servant. And sometimes you'll hear it used to question women's morality. A governor remains somebody who is in power, and a governess is someone who works for someone else. We see an interesting split also between bachelor and spinster. Well, so bachelor remains a very, I think for most people, a very positive term that the assumption is that a bachelor is an eligible single man and a spinster tends to be an ineligible single woman. And we don't have a particularly good word for an eligible single woman. People have tried bachelorette and maybe the television show has given it a little more life, but I don't know just how much life that word has. What do these pairings then tell us about who we are as a culture and the way that we treat and view women? It doesn't seem very flattering of us. And I don't think we should be surprised that you see belief systems getting embedded in the way that we talk. I think it makes all the more important the efforts that we're seeing now that people are trying to change the way we talk and make things more equitable, so non-sexist language reform. How receptive is the population to that? This is something that I've been studying, and I have been very surprised by how receptive people have been and how quickly the change has happened. So if you take an example like police officer, this has come to replace policemen, not only in the written language, but also in the spoken language. Firefighter has very successfully replaced firemen. And if you're in academia the way I am, I now, if I'm going to a meeting with the head of my department, I'm going to a meeting with my chair. And I have to say that outside of academia, people think this is hilarious because they think I am meeting with a piece of furniture. (laughs) Well, you know, Elvis Presley did that. (laughs) So, but this is now feels very natural to me. It's now become embedded. Right. And I think that sends a really different message to children. When they hear us talk about the world and we talk about police officers and firefighters, and it seems like really anybody could be one of those. And I've had people sometimes say, well, 
let's imagine that person just says firefighter, but they think it's stupid and they don't like the language change and they still think that it is fireman. And my reaction to that is, okay, you know, we can't change the way they think, but if they say firefighter, people hear something different. And it's that hearing something different, which is really important. Well, I can offer some anecdotal evidence, Mike. I'm the father of three daughters, two adult, one 11-year-old. And something so simple as unloading language does make a difference, I think, in their attitudes, in their worldview, at least when they're little. Firefighter for fireman makes a big difference about you know how they view themselves in the world. Then, of course, as they age and enter society, which is just so overwhelmingly sexist in so many ways, then reality sets in. And well, let's just say that in dealing with the underlying issues in this society and more so others around the world, you know, we're facing an uphill slog. So are you telling me that on their business cards, your two adult daughters, it says fire lady? <laughs> uh, no, it's says firefighter at. All right. As a coda, I want to point out something that Ann Curzan said earlier. She, if you remember, said that her kind of preferred plural pronoun is you guys. That word guy or guys is interesting. Interesting. Yes, it's interesting because guys are guys. They, they ain't dolls. Guys is guys and dolls is dolls. I mean, it's amazing to me that somehow... It has become, over the last, say, 15 years or so, or maybe longer, androgynous. Yeah, here's part of the conversation I had with Ann Curzan about that word. It appears that, at least for a lot of speakers, in some constructions, guy is generic, particularly in you guys. So for some speakers, that has, is one of their second-person plural pronouns, is to say, hey, you guys, or even, hey, guys, and that can be all men, all women or a mixed group. If I say, oh, I saw two guys walking down the street, those are men. Guy used referentially that way has to be men. But guys used with you, you guys, or guys used as evocative, the way I address someone, seems to be generic for speakers, which raises the question of whether a male term can actually function successfully as a generic you're sort of winking at he. Yeah, or, you know, people have made the argument that man cannot function as a generic and that he does not function as a generic. And so can we say that in something like you guys, guys is functioning as a generic? To make that argument, you'd have to say that guys in you guys has gotten bleached of meaning, that really all it's signaling is plural. I think an interesting piece of evidence along those lines is that I can use guy to refer to inanimate objects. And I first heard myself do this. I was moving and I had a house full of boxes and I said, oh, this guy goes in the kitchen and that guy goes in the bedroom. And I was referring to boxes. And I heard myself say that and I thought, what am I doing? But there again, that guy doesn't seem to carry a lot of 
meaning. It's hooked on to a demonstrative pronoun, this guy, that guy. And I give people that example and they say, oh, I do that. Sure, yeah, all the time. <laughs> so those examples suggest that perhaps guy can get bleached of meaning and with you guys just function as a plural marker. But it's contested. There are people who argue that you guys is sexist. Well, I can see why some people would say it's sexist because it's just a new formulation for making the default plural noun male. Isn't Ann Curzan arguing against the practice with one side of her mouth and arguing for it with you guys? Well, I mean, I think she might argue that guys has gotten sufficiently bleached of meaning. I think those who argue that it's sexist say that it's an example of what's called parasitic reference, which means that the culturally dominant member of a category becomes the generic, right? So you see this a lot with brand names. Kleenex is the brand that was the culturally dominant one, and it became genericized. So did Xerox. Now, if you then extend that to sex and gender, males are the kind of culturally dominant members, thereby imposing their own pronouns as the generic one. That never happens the other way around, right? You never get female pronouns as the generic ones. And in fact, Curzan writes in her book that female referential terms do not gain generic status because female reference are not the most culturally salient or highest status subset. And because there is social resistance to the use of female referential terms for men in anything other than a derogatory sense. So I think that as an academic, she would recognize that guys might be participating in this sexist tradition of genericizing male terms. But, you know, colloquially, we do a lot of things that we probably would object to academically. Oh, yeah? Tell that to Frank Lesser. When you see a mouse hurry out of the house And she runs 20 blocks for cigars and rice Call it dumb, call it clever Ah, but you can give odds forever That the doll's only doing it for some guy All right, just a quick program note. Bob and I are both traveling for the next week and a half or so, so we're going to go on hiatus for a week. In the meantime, write to us at slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. That's slatelexiconvalley at gmail.com. You can listen to all of our previous episodes at slate.com slash lexiconvalley. Please subscribe to our feed in iTunes where you can leave a rating or a review. I want to thank Ann Curzan and Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate's podcasts. All right, Mike, are we done here? We're done. Later, Gator. Guys only doing it.